is the Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland. Good afternoon. I'm Callie Buchanan. Thanks for your company today. It's five past twelve. I'd like to hear from you on the Queensland Country Hour. The number is 0487 993 Feel free to send me a text. Plenty to talk about today. How do you take a cup of tea? Maybe a cup of coffee? Maybe neither for you? Hot chocolate perhaps? Do you take it with sugar and milk? What if I told you there's an innovation that's putting the two together? It's not condensed milk. We'll take a look at the future of milk and sugar before half past 12. And while we're talking about dairy, a look at some of the latest developments for Coles's bid to take over a couple of factories down south and what that might mean for dairy pricing more broadly. But first today, let's start with the federal government's bid for its plan to offer more time and money to enable more water to flow into the Murray-Darling Basin. Now, the basin produces $22 billion worth of food and fibre each year and drinking water as well for those communities all the way down to Adelaide. But it's run into trouble with the deal that it's struck with all basin states except Victoria, which would extend the deadline for water saving targets to 2026. It needs new laws passed through Parliament to support it, and the Coalition probably won't back it, and now the Greens say they don't support it right now either. The Minister for the Environment and Water, Tanya Plibersek, told Sabra Lane the new laws have to pass Parliament by the end of the year because there are some critical dates in the Murray-Darling Basin plan. If we don't see this legislation by the end of the year, for example, we can't extend the timeframes on some very significant water efficiency and water-saving infrastructure projects that the states already have underway. I think, Sabra, it's really important to look at why we're doing this. The Murray-Darling Basin Plan is way off track. Very little water has been recovered towards the plan over the last 10 years. I think it's fair to say that the previous government was deliberately sabotaging the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. We have to get it back on track. We have to rescue the Murray-Darling Basin Plan for the sake of the the three million people who rely on the Murray-Darling for their drinking water, for the environment, uh, for the communities and the industries that lay across this basin. But saying they have to pass, it's politics here. The coalition doesn't look like it will support it. The Greens say they do not support this plan as is. You're going to have to do something to get everybody on board. You just can't demand that these laws pass. Well, there's something in this plan for everyone. We know that the coalition have been keen to see an extension of time for the delivery of the big uh, water saving and, and efficiency projects because the the more water that's delivered through these projects, the less water uh, we need to find through other measures, including voluntary water purchase. Any environmentalist, including the Greens political party, should be enthusiastic about this plan because it is a way, the only way, of delivering the extra 450 gigalitres of water for the environment that's part of the plan. When we came to government, when I became the minister, two gigalitres out of that 450 gigalitres had been delivered, just two gigalitres out of 450. 
our environment across the basin and in particular at the, the lower reaches of the Murray-Darling Basin as we go into South Australia is utterly dependent on achieving that 450 gigalitres of environmental water. We know we're going into another hot, dry period. Unless we get this water for the environment, we'll see the sort of catastrophic consequences that we've seen in years past with mass fish kills and drying banks of the river with trees that are hundreds of years old, not able to survive. That is a controversial part, though, of this plan, the 450 gigalitres. But now I think only 26 gigalitres have been found so far. You were hoping to lift the ban on buybacks from farmers to get more water. Is that where all this extra water is going to come from to fill up that 250 gigalitres? No, uh, this plan actually offers, our plan offers a range of ways that we achieve the whole of the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. We're offering more time, more options, more funding and more accountability. So more time to deliver the existing infrastructure projects and any other new ones that might come forward, more options. uh, And that, of course, includes voluntary water purchase. I've been very clear from the time I took this portfolio on that all options were on the table and that included voluntary water purchase. More funding, uh, more funding both to um, achieve the objectives within the plan but also for any community that might be uh, impacted by measures like voluntary water purchase and also more more accountability. Would you ever contemplate buying Cubby Station, a big property that produces cotton and surrendering all of that water to the environment? Well, I'm not going to start talking about individual projects, but I can tell you we're, we're in the market at the moment for voluntary water purchase. Um, we're buying around 44 gigalitres of water towards the Bridging the Gap target and there have been a lot of willing sellers. There are people interested in selling all or part of their water entitlement and uh, we're methodically walking, working through those offers at the moment. And I do believe we can do this in a way that um, minimises impacts in regional communities. I want to do it in a way that's sensitive. I know regional communities uh, have... Um, you know, really done a lot already towards the achievement of the plan. Eighty, More than 80% of water that has been recovered towards the plan was done when Labor was last in government. Uh, only about 16% has been recovered in the last 10 years. So it shows you how much of a go slow the previous government was on. You were hinting earlier that if this doesn't pass, El Nino's here, it sounds like this summer, you're suggesting that if there are fish kills and big blue-green algal blooms, that that blame rests with politics, the people who block it? Uh, no, I think the um, there is always a danger of environmental impacts during drought and you know, communities suffer terribly during drought. I've visited towns where their river, the river that flows through the town, was dry for more than 400 days during the last drought. Uh, That takes an emotional, a psychological, an economic toll on on river communities uh, as well. So both for the people and the environment that relies on this river system, we have to give it the best chance of surviving the hotter, drier years ahead. 
The Federal Minister for the Environment and Water, Tanya Plibersek, is speaking with Sabra Lane. And that legislation has been introduced to Parliament. Greens Environment spokesperson Sarah Hanson-Young says the legislation doesn't guarantee enough water will be returned to the river system for them to support it in its current form. It does a couple of good things. Uh, It removes that cap for buyback, so the Minister has the power uh, to make sure uh, the government can go and and buy back water. Uh, But there's no uh, compulsion that this will happen. There's uh, uh, There's no requirement that that 450 gigalitres that was previously promised to South Australia for the health of the river will actually be delivered. The deadline for that has been blown out in this uh, in these changes proposed by the government to 2027. That could be after even the, the election after next. That is so long away. We need to make sure that the health of the river is restored now. We are going into a drying period. We know the climate challenges. We know that irrigation um, throughout, the, particularly the southern basin, has exploded. It's actually grown uh, more than less uh, over the last decade. So even more water is coming out of the river and the environment is suffering. I don't want to see more fish kills. I don't want to see uh, in my home state in South Australia our Coorong uh, suffer again. I want to make sure we get this right. And as the plan is, it's not right. Okay. so as you know, politics is the art of compromise. What what, what is the Greens' line in the sand, or dare I say, line in the riverbank over which you (laughs) won't cross? What, What will you stick to? We want to see a guarantee that the 450 gigalitres uh, will be delivered. And it can't just be uh, at a minute to midnight on the eve of... Uh, December 31, 2027. We need to see water flowing as soon as possible. And there has to be buybacks to achieve that? Absolutely. That water will need to be bought back and delivered real water for the river. And South Australia has been dudded over and over again. And this isn't just a parochial argument, uh, Michael. I'm a senator for South Australia Mm. and I'm going to stand up for my state and that's what I'm doing. But but it's not just a a parochial argument. We are the canary in the coal mine uh, when it comes to the river system. If the river is sick uh, down south in South Australia, it's sick everywhere. So getting good flows through the Murray mouth, getting that water promised to South Australia delivered will be important for the health of the entire river system. Mm. And we know Climate change is going to make this harder. Uh, Greed of big corporate irrigators has been out of control for too long and we need to start putting the environmental needs front and centre. That's your position. What what do you say to the National Party, the Victorian Government, who argue that water buybacks will potentially cripple rural and regional communities in states like Victoria? Well, we've had a decade of uh, Victoria, New South Wales, the National Party promising that they would... Uh, fix the river with all these other means. And here we are um, at the end of uh, the the plan uh, with nothing to show for it. The river has not been restored to health. It is not... That promised water has not been delivered. So, frankly, I'm sick and tired of being told, uh, just hang on, just hang on, we've got another way of doing this. We've got another way of doing this. Science shows, the Productivity Commission shows, uh, every expert out there knows that if you want to return water to the river to keep the river alive, you've got to buy it back. 
That's Greens Environment spokesperson Sarah Hanson-Young speaking to Michael Rowland. And it will be interesting to watch the passage of that bill through Parliament. If you've got a view you'd like to share, 0487 993 2 is the number to send a text to the Queensland Country Hour. It's 16, oh, just gone 17 past 12. The Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland. A quick update on the latest on the varroa mite infested premises in New South Wales. The number identified has now reached 250. The state's Department of Primary Industries has confirmed three new detections, some in one in Sydney, in the Central Coast and in the state's northwest. A new detection at Cutterbri, west of two infested premises at Narrabri and Bogabri in the northwest, has resulted in new red and purple zones established there. That detection at Cutterbri has been traced back to the Kempsey Cluster and to what was then a legal movement between blue zones. The DPI's Deputy Incident Controller, Dr Shannon Mulholland, says the goal remains to eradicate varroa mite from Australia. But moving into the state's northwest, traced to that Kempsey cluster, but some detections at Cutterbri, west of two previously identified infested premises at Narrabri and Bogabri. Now... When it comes to the offers on the supermarket shelves, there's oat, almond, soy, rice and even macadamia. I'm talking about plant-based milks and there's plenty of choice available. But while many have tried, the current options are yet to crack the marketing holy grail of tasting just like cow's milk. That is until now. The newest entrant to the market is set to be made in Queensland, as Abby Holter reports. Milk and sugar could soon be much more than how you take your tea. At a biofutures hub being built in Mackay, scientists are hoping to produce the next big thing in dairy alternatives, sugar milk. The idea is to turn fermented sugarcane microbiomes, communities of microorganisms found in the plant, into proteins that are scientifically identical to those found in dairy milk. It's still early days, but University of Queensland Professor of Microbiology Mark Turner says the shelf-stable drink could be an excellent source of protein. The microbes are actually modified or engineered to include uh, a gene um, that can allow it to produce a specific protein of interest. Um, so there's a lot of interest in producing casein protein, which is the main protein in milk. Startup companies and researchers um, around the world are looking at now is using things like sugarcane um, and other, you know, byproducts of sugarcane processing. There are still plenty of unknowns, like whether sugar milk would have the same health benefits as other plant-based or dairy milk, and what it might mean for cane growers. Made from sugar or cane waste after it's been through the mill, Mackay Sugar CEO Yannick Elias says that it could lower exports. But the upside would be an economic boost and a new incentive to plant more cane. First of all, we don't have we, we create the value add here, which is good for Australia. The next thing is, just like with the refinery, we, we don't have all the transport costs for getting our sugar somewhere else. We can basically, like we say, just chuck it over the fence. It's not necessarily to take it away from export. It is having the choice, the optionality of doing the one or the other. 
if you have two customers, that's generally where you get a better price. Having said that, obviously, if there is a bigger market, both now domestically and we still have the world market, and especially up in Asia, who is desiring Australian sugar altogether, that, that builds on a positive future. Because then maybe we just have to see if we together, growers and millers, can create even more more cane and more raw sugar because the market simply is bigger. Farmers have seen plenty of new and innovative technologies that make use of sugarcane and plenty that have never made it to market. Cane Growers Mackay President Kevin Borg says it's important to be part of the discussion. My real hope is that growers are part of this. I'll be very disappointed if growers can't be part of it. I think it's got to be a value chain proposition. Um, growers, millers, whoever else, stakeholders have all got to do, you know, uh, be part of it and get something out of it. Otherwise, uh, I'm not sure where this industry will end up. Sugar into um, milk protein, um, yeah, look, that seems to be the big one in the food food um, part of it so far. But I, I think just as using sugar, you can look at it that um, you know it's just another use for sugar. If we can afford to just put it over the fence into a plant that's producing protein, then I think there's a premium there to be paid. The company backing the idea, Cauldron, received $528,000 from the Queensland government to get it off the ground. Chief Executive Michelle Stansfield says they're waiting on regulatory approvals to take it to the next stage. Progressive cane farmers might start looking at shoring this up if they see economic upside. We don't want to be stealing from an industry. We want to be adding to an industry. Around the world, dairy companies are investing in this kind of technology to shore up their supply chains. And while it may not be Australia's cup of tea just yet, dairy industry advocates East Oz Milk say it's worth considering. They've already spoken to representatives of the project and all parties have agreed more talks would be beneficial. A fascinating development. Thanks to Abby Halter for that story. You can read more about it online. Head to abc.net.au slash rural. It's 23 past 12. This is the Queensland Country Hour. And while we're talking about milk, dairy farmers are stepping up their campaign to get regulators to block a sale of dairy factories to supermarket giant Coles. Earlier this year, milk processor Saputo announced that it had sold a factory in Victoria and another in New South Wales to the supermarket giant for $105 million. The ACCC is now deciding if a supermarket owning processing factories is anti-competitive. Australian Dairy Farmers President Rick Gladigo says the competition watchdog should block the sale. Yeah, look, we're really concerned about about what this could mean, not just short term. While while Coles and Saputo say, "Oh, look, it's all good for farmers." Short, you know, we're all fine or whatever contracts, etc. It's the longer term of what this actually means. It's it's the beyond the five years as well. So, you know, our our concerns centre around that that losing transparency, losing you know the, the bargain bargaining power imbalance that it can create. And the competition, the loss of competition in that region and, and certainly the ACCC because they come out with this statement of intent wanting to seek more more information from the industry is there's certainly concerns around that New South Wales dairy plant and what that means to that, probably more so the southern milk suppliers in, in New South Wales. And so that Erskine factory, you know, we know that has, you know, it's running at 
50% capacity. So Coles aren't going to be happy with that. They're going to want to put more milk through that. But also, what does it mean for purchasing milk? It's the farm gate price. We know that Coles are paying a great price currently, but once you dominate a market, what is that going to mean? You know, They're not going to continue paying a, a price that's over and above um, when you've got no competition there to, uh, to make you want to pay it. Is part of your concern here that the company looking to buy these factories was the architect of Dollar Milk, which put a cap essentially on, on fresh milk prices in Australia for a period of nearly 10 years? Oh, definitely. We've we've seen how they've operated. We've we've seen the care factor, and we all took the hit. We've seen what it's it's helped to do the industry. It's not the only reason, but we've seen what it's done a lot in that Queensland, New South Wales market, even WA market, and in parts to South Australia and and New South Wales uh, in Victoria. Is dollar milk had a huge effect for a lot of uh, processes and and what that meant back to the farm gate and the farm gate price. It. it it just destroyed what used to be that premium market that it was. So that's our concern is then going, well, you're now going to have a retailer who owns from, they don't own the farms, but they own farm gate price right through to the shop shelf. And there's no third party in between that they're currently dealing with uh, under their current current situation. So they've now got, they'll, not, not now, they'll have the possibility of controlling all that and controlling exactly what those margins are in between. If you're looking at competition, though, uh, there's Bega, Saputo, Fonterra, Lactalis, Norco. There are a lot of milk processors out there. Is it a hard sell to something like the ACCC that a supermarket entering this space is going to reduce competition? It is if if not all those processors aren't all operating in those regions. So that Bega region or whatever, there's not that many processors operating. You've got Saputo and Bega operating in there, and I think Coles within reason. But you take Saputo out of it, could leave you with Beager and Coles. You've made this point a few times that having Coles become a milk processor takes out a step in the chain. Usually there's the dairy farmer, there's the processor, then there's the supermarket. But in theory, taking out the middleman, could, couldn't that give more value to dairy farmers? It might in the short term, but I don't think it will in the long term. So uh, no, obviously they want to make a margin there about their shareholders. And we're seeing this, you know, as, as what is really the care factor when we've just seen, you know, it's in the papers now today about the amount of New Zealand product now coming into Australia. And it's coming in because the two two supermarkets are bringing it in. It's a cheaper product than Australian product. We'll bring that in. Is there really a care about the Australian dairy farmer or is there actually a care about their bottom line? And I think that's, you know, I think, think what they're currently doing is, is a fairly good indication. So what are you hoping you're expecting to hear from the ACCC next week? What are you hoping the decision will be? Well, one is we hope, hope that they actually don't approve it and it doesn't go ahead and then, right, put it back out in the market and, and you know, what other opportunities are there there? And B is with under the Perishable Goods Inquiry, um, even the ACCC have actually mentioned it, but we certainly want to see the Food and Grocery Code actually become mandatory and more in line with with the uh, Dairy Mandatory Code. But if they're not going to, if they're going to allow this sale to happen, there needs to be things in place that the farmer's going to be protected into the long term. Have you tried to talk to Coles about their decision to buy these factories? Have they told you anything? No, we haven't had any direct contact with Coles at all on this one.
That's President of Australian Dairy Farmers, Rick Gladigo, speaking to Warwick Long. And Coles has been contacted for comment. If you'd like to make a comment, you can send me a text on 0487993222. Do you think the ACCC should block that deal? Do you have any concerns about Coles getting into the process again? 0487993222 is the number to send me a text like John at Tolga has done. Referring back to the sugarcane milk, he says, sugarcane juice, not milk. Milk is produced by mammals. Well, John, you've just waded right into the middle of that marketing debate. What I can tell you is that this particular product is very different to your traditional sugarcane juice that uh, if you've been lucky enough to uh, get a taste of is quite delicious in my view. But that is one of the very uh, many arguments that were had around this particular story on social media yesterday. Of course, you can always share your view. 0487 to send me a text. On ABC Radio Queensland, this is the Queensland Country Hour. I've got an update for you on Malaysia. They've lifted an order to suspend the imports of live cattle and buffalo from Australia. From our international news desk, it says Malaysia paused imports last month as a precautionary measure after lumpy skin disease was detected in that small number of cattle from Australia uh, in Indonesia. The decision to lift the suspension was made after Malaysia received a full investigation report from Australian authorities and discussions between both countries. The disease, uh, of course, is highly infectious, but Australia remains LSD-free. Of course, it does not pose a risk to humans, but that's uh, what we have there. Malaysia has lifted the order to suspend the imports of live cattle and buffalo from Australia. I'm going to ask you to think a little bit about your power bill now, and I'm sorry if that made you flinch, but if you're watching very closely the transition to renewable energy, you might be interested to learn that plans to close Australia's largest coal-fired power station may be delayed because of a lag in the transition to renewable energy. The Araring power plant at Lake Macquarie in New South Wales was set to close in 2025, but a report into energy reliability has recommended the New South Wales government intervene to keep it running. The government will now engage with the plant's owner, Origin Energy, about possibly extending that deadline. David Leach is an energy analyst with ITK Services. He tells Lorna Dunkley the news doesn't come as a surprise. Uh, It's kind of um, insurance rather than maybe uh, completely necessary. What do you mean by that? What I mean is there's about... um, Araring has a capacity of a bit over 2,000 megawatts, 2 gigawatts, and there's about 4,000 megawatts of new capacity being built in New South Wales over the next couple of years. Um, And then there's all the rooftop solar coming as well and a lot of other stuff, more than double that in other states, all of which uh, could and is designed to replace uh, Araring. You and I spoke last week when we had the report that foresaw or or worst-case scenario foresaw that the lights could go out in a couple of states uh, this year because of a lack of energy supply. Is it instances like this that might make that difference to keep this sort of plant open? Well, there will be a 1,000 megawatts of new gas-fired capacity in New South Wales as part of what I was talking before. 
Um, uh, um, and look, Araring is, in my opinion, far more profitable than it was a couple of years ago. Electricity prices uh, are quite high at the moment, and in fact, just this year, the coal price is controlled by the New South Wales government. And if you add the numbers up, I mean, uh, I think, um, in, in one sense, uh, Origin would be very unhappy at closing Araring. It's making a lot of money. Yeah, of course, but the, the move is towards more renewable sources to cut the carbon footprints of, of this. The criticism here is that if the New South Wales government prolongs the life of this power plant, the coal-fired power plant, then it's less urgency for it to move in a more climate-friendly direction. That's a very good point. Uh, by far the most useful thing the New South Wales government could do is to work on the people side of things. The approval process for uh, wind and solar farms has been terrible in the past couple of years and it's widely recognised as that, or it's, it's too complex. And it's because they haven't approached it with the required amount of seriousness. Uh, you have to work from the inside out, if I can put it that way, to get new wind and solar farms approved. You have to bring the landowners and transmission built. You have to bring the landowners on side. You have to bring the councils on side. You have to show the councils what's in it for them. You have to show them how thousands of people building these uh, uh, wind farms can be accommodated. Uh, you have to deal with damage to the Snowy Mountains Highway that's caused and this sort of thing. And what's been lacking is sufficient investment in people and in planning processes. It's not a lack of money. There's endless amounts of money around to build this stuff. It's not a lack of technology. We all know how to do it. It's having the right people in the right places and the proper planning. I hope you're going to tell me that that is improving. Well, it's hard to tell. I think it's improving. Of course, you're still hearing lots and lots of complaints about how badly it's been done. But I suspect that under the surface, the New South Wales Government and Energy Co have been listening and working on it. But I think it's still an area that the Minister, if she were to spend time on and did a better job there, in the long run, she'd be much better remembered than for keeping a raring couple of units going for another 12 months or something. Interesting developments indeed. Energy analyst David Leach speaking with Lorna Dunkley. It's 26 to 1. You're listening to the Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland. We're going to take a look at a new record for one beef breed before one o'clock and we'll have a bit of a chat about confidence in the ram market. That's still to come on the Queensland Country Hour for you this afternoon. Before we get there, though, let's check on the latest from the Weather Bureau. Shane Kennedy is on duty as your forecaster. Good afternoon, Shane. Now, I see that you do have a storm warning or a severe weather warning, I should say, for damaging winds for that sort of southwestern border region. Can you take me through the latest on that one? Yeah, so that's for damaging wind gusts uh, developing from uh, late Thursday morning, so tomorrow morning, and it's likely will last uh, through to the afternoon and evening. And that's just uh, so ahead of the next trough system that'll move into the far southwest uh, tomorrow, expecting some pretty strong north-northwesterly winds. So there's a potential we could see some damaging wind gusts there, so getting up to around that 90 kilometre an hour mark. So it's mainly in uh, western New South Wales, but there is a potential we could see some of that creeping over the border during the morning. And in association with those winds too, Kelly, we'll quite likely see uh, some areas of raised dust uh, through the Channel Country tomorrow. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the dust, and uh, is that those sorts of conditions likely to persist? So we'll have that trough system uh, sweep east on the Friday, so that'll 
likely uh, see most of the, the worst of the winds moving to New South Wales, so that unlikely we'll see that warning persist uh, through uh, Thursday evening. But we could see that dust uh, spread uh, along that trough system uh, up through uh, western Queensland, potentially through parts of southern Queensland as well. So there'll be a bit of a watch point on that Friday there, but we could see that spread further across. For the rest of Queensland, what are we expecting over the next couple of days? So expecting uh, those showers and thunderstorms to redevelop uh, between Emerald and Roma, so similar area to yesterday is the thinking. So we still have a bit of a trough uh, lingering through that area down through southeastern Queensland. So expecting we'll see those showers and thunderstorms start to develop again. So just starting to see some cloud building up now, so quite likely to see uh, more storms on their way there. And, and much like yesterday, expecting we'll see those uh, thunderstorms uh, track east through the day and so become quite likely to move through the Darling Downs and White Bay and Burnett once again, and just a low chance we could see some severe thunderstorms uh, around Kingaroy and Toowoomba later today, uh, Cali. So there is the potential we could see some damaging wind gusts, uh, large hail and heavy rainfall there. And Unlike the storms yesterday, though, not expecting to really uh, um, make it too, too far to the coast at this stage, but mainly be around that Kingaroy and Toowoomba area later today. And is that uh, front that's coming through likely to affect the temperatures as well? So we'll see those temperatures still pretty warm, in, particularly in southern Queensland, for the next uh, uh, day or two, just still getting in that sort of 3 to 7 degrees above the average there and, and pretty close to average elsewhere. And in the wake of that change, though, I uh, are expecting things to finally start to cool down in the, the west on the Friday and then extend across much of southern and central Queensland over the weekend. Could even get cold enough for some frost on Sunday morning uh, through uh, south, inland southern Queensland. So it'll be a bit of a watch point there. And uh, looking further uh, north there, Kelly, uh, lots of sunshine for northern Queensland today with still that, that morning fog in eastern districts likely to continue tomorrow. But from tomorrow, expecting the return of the showers. So mainly along the east coast, uh, north of Bundaberg tomorrow, we'll see those, those, that moisture push back on the coast and the showers return. And in extending also across northern Cape York Peninsula, we could also see a storm or two on Thursday. And so it's probably the first of many showery days on their way uh, for, for northern and far northern Queensland along that east coast. Feels like spring. Uh, so, how are we looking in terms of the coastal waters for the rest of the week? So, reasonably mild at the moment, uh, Kelly, out on the waters. Uh, so, in the Gulf in particular, it's generally just a fairly variable southeasterly, 10 to 15 knots. And for most of the east coast, we're in the southeasterly regime. And generally, 10 to 15 knots near the coast, but getting up to 15 to 20 knots across our large portions, so mainly north of Townsville, for the next couple of days. So may have a bit of a brief easing trend on Friday before they pick up again on the weekend. And into the southeast, though, we just ahead of that, that week trough today, we do have some uh, winds more in the north-northeast direction and still getting up to, to 20 knots of time, so still a little bit fresh there at the moment. We'll keep an eye on it. Thank you very much for your time on the Country Hour today. Thanks, Kelly. Have a good afternoon. Shane Kennedy, the forecaster on duty at the Weather Bureau for you this afternoon. The Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland. How are you this afternoon? You feel like you're living your dream? Is it just out there living the dream? I'd like to introduce you to Karen and Greg Bath. The Bundaberg couple are travelling the Northern Territory in their caravan while also playing an essential role in keeping people safe and they are living their dream. They go to many remote camp drafts, rodeos and races in the Outback event calendar to work as remote medics. They help ensure the events that connect those isolated communities can go ahead. And for Karen, it gives her something to focus on. I said, oh, hi. They said, do you need any help? I said, oh, we're the medics. Yes, we know. You looked after me at um, Tennant Creek last year. And the other one said, yeah, you looked after me too. 
lots of people walk past us and say hi Karen, hi Greg and you know we sort of become a little bit of a household name I suppose in that everybody knows that we're the medics. Hi I'm Greg Bath, uh, I'm a registered paramedic. Hi I'm um, Karen Bath and uh, I'm actually the wife of uh, Greary um, and I'm a AEMT which is an advanced emergency medical technician. Greg and I travel the country um, looking after people at medical uh, with medical at um, their events. We're from Bundaberg actually, uh, we live beautiful Bundaberg, but we travel, we're hardly ever home, we travel all over the country. Yeah, the travel is fantastic. I'm very lucky to have my youngest son with us on this trip and uh, young Matt is a, is a city boy, he's a Melbourne boy and Matt just said, wow dad, you, you've got the best job ever. Karen and Greg are easy to spot at a crowded rodeo. The paramedics stand out in their striking red scrubs ready to jump in and help in the event of an emergency. And at rodeos and camp drafts that are a long way from everywhere, they get called on to treat anything. Oh, wow. The list is endless. In the event, we, uh, we get femurs, uh, femur fractures. Uh, we get tib-fib fractures. Um, we certainly get pelvis fractures. You know, people sitting on a horse cross-legged amongst others and cattle and then someone hitting the horse and the horse throwing the rider. Of course, we've got an injury straight away. Spinal fractures, uh, they're quite common. Uh, internal injuries, um, you know, pneumothoraxes or a hole in the lung, um, you know, uh, spleen, liver, um, in, internal problems. Uh, of course, it's uh, grey nomad season out here now, and um, there's, there's many, many thousands of grey nomads running around, and a lot of them I can see here today, there's hundreds of them here at this event. And, of course, they can present with various medical issues, you know, cardiac events, respiratory events. We've had critical cardiac instances where the person shouldn't have been any further than 50 kilometres from a hospital. Uh, but here they are in the middle of nowhere with nothing. And that's fairly common that we finish up with a patient that's, uh, that's actually not from the, uh, from the event. Well, we get to travel all over. Um, we have our mobile home behind us and um, we get to see the country, but uh, most importantly, um, we are there for the safety of um, people uh, who are doing uh, their social thing, um, especially in the Territory, where, um, do you know, camp drafts and these type of events um, is their social outlet. You know, They travel for hours and hours to, to meet up and... Um, to see the kids get together with other kids and, um, importantly, uh, watch over them to ensure that if they hurt themselves that, they were there, that we're there to, to take care of them. Well, we're not just part of the community. Like, we've just spent three days at Mount Riddick Station. You know, they've taken us in as part of the family and we don't just look after the injuries that happen at the event. Uh, a lot of what we do is... Um, you know, these people are so remote from help that, um, you know, I've become a bit known for looking after infected toes, um, you know, and we, we take care of things that they rock up here with as well, you know, and, um, you know, we've been told in the past that um, they've gone for help and they've said, no, sorry, not doing it, it's not part of the um, event, it didn't happen in the arena, so we don't have to do it, so um, people know that we'll take care of them. Keeping doing what I'm doing keeps me mentally sane because I think you have to have a positive outlook, otherwise you'll just sit at home and dwell on it. So I'm, um, I'm stage four metastasised um, breast cancer, so um, that means it's terminal, but um, I was diagnosed three years ago. They said to me, do you know five years is the average, but they have some women that have 
branched out to 10. My oncologist is um, like, he'll FaceTime me on Friday. Um, he's really good. He'll fax my scripts through to Catherine for me and uh, happy days, I keep going. Being remote um, can have its challenges, you know. I've had instances where I didn't get a script and I was out at um, Boralula. They put out a call and um, somebody's sister was coming from somewhere, so you know they faxed the clinic back through scripts, and people went and picked them up and brought them out for me. So, um, yeah, people become aware, and I think that's important: is awareness. Focused on helping others, you're thinking about something outside of your own world a little bit. Yeah, so it, it takes my mind off it. You know, I start treatment again on Sunday, so I'm on a, a tablet form of treatment, so two weeks on, two weeks off. And, um, you know, I try and put it to the back of my mind. And, but I'm also very aware of making it aware because people need to not bury their head when it comes to, you know, you think that there's anything wrong with your body, go and get it checked because, you know, the sooner you can get hold of something, the better chance you have for survival. Incredible capacity to help others whilst dealing with that herself. That's Karen and her husband, Greg Bath, remote medics. And thanks to Victoria Ellis and Ross Kay for that story. Medical angels, marvellous. That's Gomez from Umundi who sent me that message on 0487 993 You can always send a message to the Queensland Country Hour through that number as well, 0487 993 Brad says, still dairying. Coles were the big players with the dairy industry here in Queensland with that $1 a litre milk, but Brad is still in the dairy. Great to hear from you today, Brad. It's a quarter to one. The Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland. A speckle park bull in the New South Wales mid-north coast has set a world record for the breed. At the East Coast Select Sale in Kempsey, Born Ready Shady sold for $150,000 to a Queensland Speckle Park stud. What's astonishing about this story is that it's the first bull that Brooke and Andrew Paff have sold. The reserve on him was $6,000. Brooke is speaking to Kim Honan. Um, ridiculously shocked. We're, I think my face kind of still looks like that, to be honest. It hasn't really sunken in yet. <laughs> Yeah, it was um, it was a pretty pretty special moment, that's for sure. Well, tell me about uh, Born Ready Shady. Well, when Shady was born, he was a black speckle park bull calf, and black speckles aren't really a high sought after item. So we we're a little bit disappointed, to be honest, when he was born. But um, as he started to grow, he's always been quite a standout calf, and um, yeah, he's just. He just blossomed, really. The older he got, the better he got, and we always knew he was good, but we didn't realise just how good he was. And why aren't the, the black speckle parks sought after? Is it just because of the the colouring? They don't have the speckles? That That's exactly right, yeah. So um, there's a few reasons why black speckles can't, um, aren't so sought after, I should say. So they can't be shown as of yet, so they can't be taken to shows and, and led around. And um, also, I think people mistake them a little bit for Angus also. So that's another reason why they're not sort of so sought after. But um, the speckle park breed as a whole is sort of whitening. So all the cattle across the board are sort of getting whiter and whiter. So the black bulls are becoming um, quite quite a sought after item now. Now, Brooke, ahead of the sale, you're pretty surprised with the scan results for Shady, an EMA of 143. Correct. Yeah, that was um, that was 
mind-blowing, to be honest. We still don't quite believe it, to be honest. We're not 100% sure, but we're fairly certain that it, it might have even been an, a, an Australian record for an EMA for a speckle. And for those not familiar with what an EMA is, describe the importance of it. Um, it's an eye muscle area, so it's basically how much carcass is on the bone, pretty much. So the more meat you get on the bones, the more money you get. And what else did the scan results reveal about Shady? Um, he was quite impressive because he's he's basically a big ball of, of muscle and meat, pretty much. He's not over fat, which is, um, which is also pretty important because you don't want too fat of cattle because it's not always great for their feet and for serving and things like that. So he was just sort of a, a an overall complete package. So he was meaty, muscly, but not too fat. And going into the sale, did you have any idea that he might fetch this much? Oh, God, no. Oh, God, no. We, we had a very, very small reserve on him, given the current market. We're, we're basically in drought again here um, in Dyes Crossing, New South Wales. So um, across the board, cattle prices are back a lot. So we weren't expecting anything like this at all. What was the reserve? $6,000. $6,000? Yeah. And yeah. you got $150,000? Yeah. And set a yeah. world record for the breed? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good day at work. Brooke Path with Kim Honan. And that that idea of uh, quality and confidence, it's being borne out in the ram market as well. There's plenty of confidence in quality. A number of ram sales across the Central West in the past week have demonstrated that. And as you head into the driest part of the year, there's a lot to be said that that confidence will continue. Duncan Ferguson, Marina Production Specialist for Elders across Western Queensland and District Wool Manager, is speaking with Madeline McCosker. This last week of ram sales have been absolutely excellent. Uh, it's a true sign of the confidence in the market at the moment in the merino and wool industry. Um, I know th- people are doing it tough, but uh, yeah, look, we've had a great result this week. We had the Terrick ram sale uh, that was held on Tuesday, last Tuesday. We had 100 rams up for sale, 100% clearance, an average of $1,520 with a gross of $152,000 overall and a top of uh, $2,900 for uh, a ram that went back down into New South Wales. Uh, The sheep were well grown, beautiful, soft, wide handling wool. Uh, So, you know, a credit to the uh, the Turnbull family and what they presented on the day. And uh, then on Friday, last Friday, uh, we had the Mount Ascot Jolly Jumbuck sale. Again, a brilliant sale, 106 rams, a clearance of 100%, an average of $1,580 with a gross of 167500 Top price for a pole, lot one, $3,800. Stayed up here locally in the Aramac area, uh, which is true testament to the confidence in Western Queensland. And as you just said there, obviously people are very willing to pay for good quality, for high quality. And the market's still, particularly in the local market, you know, it's gone through fluctuations in in the last, you know, couple of decades, you could say. But there is a bit of a rebuild at the moment. And, And obviously, you know, what we're seeing from around Western Queensland is that there is very good quality out there and that people are willing to pay for it. Yeah, Maddie, I think, look, you know, uh, the market's um, being challenged at the moment, no doubt, uh, but it's a reflection of markets on the move, you know, moving up and down. But generally speaking, it's all about quality. 
Um, numbers important also, but you know people need to buy good rams to put over their ewes. Um, I think there is confidence out there. I know we're being challenged at the moment, but if we can get through this year, um, I'm sure that it'll come with time. Uh, we're probably looking probably later in the year before we see a move in the wool market as such. But these rams will be joined late in the year, around the end of November, December and into January. Um, so people can see that there is a future in the wool and, and the merino sheep industry. They're buying quality. They're not afraid to buy, uh, pay for good quality rams. So, look, there's still confidence out there and there always will be. So this is just a reflection of that. So it's very good to see. And the quality that we are seeing is a reflection of the seasons that we've had in in recent years, as much as it is the, the hard work of the stud owners. So do you see confidence changing as the seasons change? Obviously, we're heading into warmer, drier weather. Where, where do you think things are going to go from here? Oh, look, <clears throat> I think there's always going to be confidence there, even though, you know, we may be going into the tougher time and the most challenging time of, of the year, being September, October when there's probably least rainfall, low protein and what have you in the pasture, uh, people realise that, you know, we do need to have quality. We do need to look forward. We do need to look towards next year. So when we're buying these rams, we're talking about 12 months down the track. Even though they're being joined soon, the progeny won't be on the ground until this time next year. So it's important to reflect on that and make sure that we look forward and make sure that we... Uh, we, we think positively because it can only move forward from here and I'm sure it will. And we are at West Tech at the moment and there's two sales happening this afternoon um, here at the Buckhalden Showgrounds. Can you tell me about those sales? Yes. Uh, <clears throat> firstly, Maddie, uh, the first one's the Elders Queensland Merino Stud Sheep Breeders Association ram sale. It's an auction. We have Lansdowne uh, showing with uh, 20 horned rams and 10 poles. And they also have one pole ram that's going to be donated uh, to the Royal Flying Doctor Service. Uh, we also have Victoria Downs with 10 horn merinos and 10 poles. And also Wyambi uh, from down at Surratt uh, with five pole merinos. And also uh, Jolly Jumbucks with 10 poles. And Mount Ascot with 15 horned rams available for auction. Um, so that starts at 1.30 this afternoon. Uh, and we're hoping that's going to be well supported. The rams are magnificent, extremely well grown. You've seen them yourself. Everyone that's seen them so far are very suitably impressed. Uh, following that, we do have Edgelabra, uh, Bunnick Pole and Wanganella selling uh, immediately after in their site. And those rams are going to be donated to the Ben Chandler Foundation. Uh, and that's a credit to them and a reflection of the confidence and also the support that the studs are giving back into industry. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's a very kind gesture and, um, yeah, I just think the day will be very positive. That's Duncan Ferguson from Elders speaking with Madeline McCosker. Looking forward to seeing the results from those sales this afternoon at West Tech. You're listening to the Queensland Country Hour. It's five to one. Let's head to the Dalrymple sale yards at Charters Towers. Here's Mick Kingham. Good afternoon. Numbers fell by 880 for a yarding of 1,148 cattle. Quality was very mixed with fewer numbers of heavy prime bullocks and cows. 
store cattle were generally plainer in condition, which also consisted a large consignment of northern males. Buyer attendance was limited to a couple of processors, two live exporters and opportunity feeders and restockers, with cattle drawn from Mount Isa to Huonan, south to the Baliando and the local area. Selective demand throughout saw values eased by 20 to 40 cents in most categories, with secondary lines attracting limited competition. Light vealer steers returned the paddock sold to 196 to average 160 to 188. A limited supply of good quality heifers sold at 220 to average 174 to 187. There was an insufficient supply of yearling steers and heifers to reliably quote. A good sample of grain steers above 400 kilos to feed reached 202 to average 176. Heavy trade steers made to 240 to average 230. And trade heifers topped at 184 to average 178. Heifers to feed reached 198 to average 172 to 170. Mixed quality offering of full mouth bullocks to export slaughter topped at 240 to average from 209 to 237. Medium weight three score cows processors reached 190 to average 157. Prime heavyweight cows sold from 156 to 183. And heavy bulls to live export topped at 276 to average 262. Thank you, Mick. To Grace Mere now, here's Richard Thompson. Good afternoon, listeners. Numbers at CQLX Grace Mere sale dropped again this week by 215 head to 2139. Cattle have been drawn from Bowen in the north through to Miriam Bale in the south and west of Taroom. Quality is mixed and mostly well-bred cattle on offer. To date, competition has been reduced for all lots sold. The normal processors and feeders are present, although some are not buying, even at the reduced rates present. And restockers are similarly reticent. Lightweight yearling steers to date have reached 283 to average 270 to restockers. Medium weights to feed have sold to 277 to average 229 to 260 cents. Plain conditioned heavy bullocks average 233 to 242 to, to processors and 231 to 254 to feed. Grown heifers were likely supplied to a top at 222. Heavy four score cows dropped another five cents this week to average 197 cents. And heavy bulls average 227 to processors. This has been Richard Thompson for the National Livestock Reporting Service of the MLA from Gracemere. A bit of reticence in the market. Let's see what played out in Dolby. Here's Trevor Hess with the quotes. Good afternoon. The continuing decline in prices reduced the number of cattle at Dolby to 3,375, a fall of 1,388 head from the previous sale. The local supply area penned 2,411 and 673 came from far western Queensland with 291 head from New South Wales. Most of the regular export buyers were in attendance and operating selectively. However, one major feed and trade buyer was absent from the buying panel. Heavyweight yearling steers to feed at the time of the Cinder Report have averaged 14 cents less. A better quality lineup of heavyweight yearling heifers to feed experienced a stronger market. Cows were firm to 2 to 7 cents cheaper. Heavyweight yearling steers to feed made to a top of 296 to average 275. Heavyweight yearling heifers to feed were not far behind and sold to 288 to average 256. Medium weight light conditioned cows made to 166 to average 149. Heavyweight three score cows averaged 205. The best of the heavyweights made to 222 to average 217. This has been Trevor Hess from MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thank you, Trevor. And that's about it from the Queensland Country Hour today. The news is not very far away at one o'clock. Remember, you can get the latest ABC Rural News online at any time. Just head along to abc.net.au slash rural. You can take a look at the progression of that Murray-Darling Basin Plan bill through Parliament. Learn about what West Australia's beekeepers fear when it comes to varroa mite and get more detail on that sugarcane milk. 
It's all available online anytime. I'll be back on your radio from midday tomorrow. Don't forget to tune in for your rural report at a quarter past six tomorrow as part of your local breakfast program. My name's Callie Buchanan. Thanks for your company today. It's one o'clock.